9, Isaiah 9, and we'll be uh, looking at verse 6. I did get uh, asked this last week here um, of the significance of the different colors of the candles. Uh, the, just to give you a little uh, explanation, the purple in uh, church historic uh, church history has been one of spiritual preparedness, preparing your heart. And uh, the pink has been one of joy or triumph, another way of saying that. And uh, white is also the symbol of purity. That's why it's a Christ candle, and we'll talk more about that. But um, I'm purposely leaving out some other things because uh, this last week, uh, Pastor Caleb and I had the privilege of recording a podcast where we went into uh, this even more, and it is online or uh, wherever you find your podcast, you can find it there. Um, if you want a little little help there too, if you went to uh, Senior Saints, we talked about it there. So uh, you got you, if you miss Senior Saints, well, you missed that. Uh, we also had a special guest in our podcast, but I'll leave it at that. You can have to listen to find out who the special guest is. And you can determine how special the guest was or not. Um, but uh, I'd encourage you. Uh, we are trying to use that as a platform to, as we do different things here at church, to give you a little bit of a, a little bit more uh, insight into kind of why we're doing what we're doing, and uh, a little bit more teaching uh, than just in the normal ebb and flow here. So I'd encourage you to use those resources. Uh, and if you aren't good with podcasts, uh, ask anyone, I guess maybe a little bit younger than you, and they may be able to point you to where you need to go. So. That being said, let's pray and uh, start our service. Dearly Father, again, as we come before you, help us to grasp the height and the depth of the love that you have for us. As we think about this idea of peace, and we see the great need of it all around the world, help us not to miss the great need we need in our own lives for peace. What does it mean to have peace with you, peace with one another? So, Dearly Father, help us to grasp this fully, today as much as we are possible, for us to truly then anticipate with excitement again all the beauty that your Son coming to earth, what he came to do and what he accomplished. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. If you've ever been in an argument with someone, or you had a strained relationship of one way or another, usually when you're thinking about that strained relationship and the struggle, one of the things probably you personally can figure out while you're thinking about this is where the issue really lies. All right, you know, if you're sitting there and I might be frustrated with someone else, many times we can kind of clearly see that. The problem is the other person is not clearly seeing where the issue is, is because if they would agree with us where the problem is, then we could come to a solution. But usually when there's a disagreement in our argument, we usually think really the main crux of the problem is that person, not me, because most of the time our issues are out there. We don't realize that the issue is mainly, and it's always going to start here. And so when you have little kids that are arguing over a toy, you have little kids that are arguing over who gets to sit in the middle or who doesn't want to sit in the middle. I mean, the arguments of if you have three seats in the back seat of the car, you know, or you want the window or the middle, and who gets that, and as long as whatever somebody wants, right, that's what the other person now all of a sudden decided they want, and the argument that goes on, and if you grew up in the Yorgi household, usually somebody pauses and says, hey, who's going to be the peacemaker here? 
And then usually there's a pause because guess what they're waiting for the other person to do? Be the peacemaker. We'll let you be the peacemaker. And then I've literally heard my own kids say, why am I always the peacemaker? Why don't they be the peacemaker? And you're like, uh, okay, I think we have an attitude problem here. But I truly do believe when it comes to the second candle of Advent, peace, I really do truly believe that unless we grasp the whole fact that Jesus Christ came to bring peace, if we do not understand that, we don't understand the depth of it, I would argue there's much biblical teaching that you will be on a completely different course if you do not grasp why there needed to be peace with God and man. If you do not understand that, I'm going to say you're going to miss, I would almost argue literally all that the Bible has to say, but if you don't understand the issue that is there, why does God and man, why do they need peace? If we don't understand that, we will be in great peril, I would argue, even into error. So let's look at Isaiah 9.6. In Isaiah 9.6, we have the prophecy that Isaiah was writing. And as he's writing this, he says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And we can already tell that this is going to be a totally different child than the normal child, because the government will be upon his shoulders, and now his name, he's going to be named something. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Then it ends with Prince of Peace. Notice the weight of the government being on his shoulders, but he will literally be called the Prince of Peace. Why the Prince of Peace? Why is out of all of the things that are there, why do we have Prince of Peace? Now, in order to understand this, I hope your fingers are ready to go because we're going to be flowing through Bible passages all over the place. So be ready. I try to give you the passages there in your notes so it can set you up for what we're doing. But if this child who's to be born, which is Jesus, is called the Prince of Peace, we have to understand that if he is the one that is bringing in this peace, that there is no other peace found outside of your interaction with the Prince of Peace. And we have to ask ourselves, why, does, why when he comes, why is he bringing peace? What is going on? Where is the conflict that he's stepping into? So let's go to Romans chapter 8 here. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul is going to be talking about this need for peace. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to actually start in verse 5. He's going to talk about two different groups of people. In verse 5 here, Romans chapter 8, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So obviously there's two categories here. Those who are have their living to the flesh, their mind is on the flesh, and there's those who are living the Spirit whose mind is on the Spirit. Verse 6, To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life. And peace. So, those who are their minds are set on the flesh, that brings about death. But if your mind is set on the spirit, that brings about life and peace. Now he's going to go explain the mind of those whose heart is thinking about the flesh. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, I want to make sure we walk through this. If you are unsaved, your heart and mind are on the things of the flesh. 
If you are saved, your heart and mind are on things of the Spirit. And now Paul is going to give us a couple of words to describe what the heart that is not following after God, the unbelieving heart, is. So let's go through this. They are hostile to the things of God. Literally, that word hostile means when they see the things of God, they hate it, and not just hate it, they are actively pursuing ways of trying to destroy it because there's hostility there. So we're talking about man, and when he hears the things of God, they are hostile to the things of God. Next, he goes on to say, nor does he submit to them. So we have God's law, and he's not going to place himself under God's law. Why? Because he's hostile to the things of God. And then we have some of these phrases here that there's no way of getting around it. And it says, indeed, even if he wanted to, it says he cannot, because those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So you're saying you do not go from flesh to spirit. You can't just do this on your own. Why? Because you don't want to do it. You don't want the things of God, because literally Paul is reminding us, you are hostile to the things of God. So now we've talked about in this conflict here, mankind in his unsaved state hates the things of God, will not submit to the law of God, nor does he even want to. So now we have to find out, in the conflict here, what about Jesus? What about God? What's going on there? So turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and again, he speaks of these two different groups. In John 3, 36, it said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Again, categorizing this. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to have eternal life. If you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have eternal life. But it goes even more to say that. But what about... God and his interaction with this. Notice what it says, but the wrath of God remains on him. So what we have is here, we have those who are living according to the flesh, hate the things of God, do not want to do anything about the things of God. And over here we have God who literally, what we see the text is telling us, what is his attitude towards those who are hostile against him? The wrath of God literally abides on him. We have a major conflict here because it is not as if you were just upset with a, with a co-equal. We have mankind rebelling against God and God because of His love and mercy and justice and all of the other attributes at that same time are pouring out His wrath on mankind because of that great rebellion against man. All right? You should feel like we're in pro we have a problem here because we do have a problem here. Because Adam in the garden, when he rebelled against God, when his blatant rebellion against God, when he took the fruit and he ate it, he said, God, I know better. I do not want to do the things of you. And what broke there was not just a removal from the garden, it was a break of fellowship between God and man. And then we see, last week we talked about the break in fellowship between man and man. Remember how Adam and his wife are going to have some major issues there? And then we also saw in the curse between man and nature in the garden. And so now all the things that we were supposed to be doing, being fruitful and multiply, that curse that is there, we have disease and sickness and thorns and all these other things. So we have a break between God and man. We have a break between man and man. We have a break between man and creation. All right, there's a mess going on here if you haven't realized how the Word of God is speaking here. And so here's what we find out in the garden. 
When Adam chose to rebel and turn his back on God. We literally have in your minds what you want to do is you have God and His law and His truth here and Adam willfully turned his back on the things of God saying, I am going to follow my own way. He reaches out, he takes from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and guess what he got? He got the knowledge of good and he also got the knowledge of evil. But what happened? He found out that the desire to do evil was now his master. And no matter what he did, he served his master. This is where Jesus talks about all the same thing. You can't serve two masters. You're going to love the one or hate the other. And Adam found out that when he took of the knowledge of the good and evil, that tree, he ate it. Evil was his master. And so all of the descendants of Adam, after that, were born with that rebellious heart. Romans 6, 23 reminds us that the wages of sin is death. What man earns every day when we rebel against Almighty God, we earn death. And then Paul in Romans 1, if you could turn with me to Romans 1, just want to walk through Paul's argument again here. In Romans chapter 1, Verse 18, just in case if you wonder that if I somehow in your mind thought I cherry-picked John 3.36 about the wrath of God abiding on us, Paul picks it up here, and here's what he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness with men who, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. All right, he's saying like it is obvious that these men, when they suppress the truth, and we're going to find out what is the truth they're suppressing, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And it goes on in verse 20, talking about the invisible attributes, so that they were without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles. So let me explain here what's happening. We have man and his rebellion against Almighty God, and what Paul is telling us that it is obvious that the wrath of God is being poured out on this, on mankind. And so what mankind does when they see the wrath of God being poured out on them, it causes them to follow even further into depravity and to run away from this. And so literally the, Paul is saying they have no excuse here to not recognizing what's in front of them. And so then what does man do? They become futile in their thinking. Their hearts that are foolish have been darkened to the truth. They think they're wise, but in their wisdom they've actually become a fool. And what they've done is exchange the glory of God, the things that are to be a glorious thing, for just mere mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles, and the relationship with nature and the relationship with each other is destroyed because the relationship with God has been destroyed. There's so much you could say here about our today's culture, but I'll let you connect the dots. But notice what God does in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. So notice when man rebels against Almighty God, you have God here in verse 24. He gives them over. Go ahead. Pursue these impure lusts, these impure thoughts, these impure things. And what do they do when they've been given full reign to pursue after their own desires and lusts? What do we see? We do not see beauty and harmony. What do we see? The dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who was blessed forevermore. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Notice their honorable passions, but because of their blatant rebellion against God, for women exchanging natural relationships for those who are contrary to nature, and men likewise giving up natural relationship with women they consumed with passions to one another, men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And what we see here in this, as their foolish hearts are being darkened, we see that not only does unsaved man reject God, but he willingly turns to everything else and says it is God, and he takes what is obvious in front of him and that is wrong and calls it true. God gives them over to a depraved mind, a depraved state, where now all of a sudden as you read this in this, you see them encouraging one another. They're doing this, and it just, it's like the snowball effect, where all of a sudden those who are rebelling against God are almost praised and applauded for what they're doing. It's, it's the end here. Notice this in verse 32. Though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but give approval to those who are practicing them. And what we see is when mankind is in sinful, in his sinful state, not only as error comes in, they see the error, and they say that's true, and what they literally do then is they stand and applaud those who are bringing in error. Because they are so blind to the truth, They're so blind to the way God has called things to be that they literally will stand up and will say, even though that does not follow at all God's design, why? We stand and applause the opposites because we hate Him to the very core. And so everything that He has designed, everything that He has brought about, everything that God has put into place, we are going to topple it all in anger and rebellion against Almighty God. And God, His wrath on mankind because of their rebellion against God is clearly seen. This is why the gospel call, the good news goes out because you are helpless. There is no way you can save yourself because there is no peace in this conflict. You deserve death, and it's just a matter of time until you get it from Almighty God, and He is as just as just can be. He doesn't need a little thing in front of it. It's God's justice. All right, Justice is just, and it will come about, and one day we will all stand before an Almighty God and give an account. That is why the good news is good news, because something happened. This is why, though, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, yeah, things are really bad. I mean, really, really, really bad. I'm summarizing. He doesn't say it that way. Because he says that is why you literally need a rebirth. That is why you literally need to start over and be born again. You need a totally new heart and you need a totally new way of thinking because the old way of thinking is only going to lead you to disaster, to hostility towards God and God being hostile towards you. And this is why we have to continually pause and look at our own hearts and minds because the call of the gospel is a call of repentance. Not acceptance of sin, it's a repentance of sin. Literally the phrase when he says the cost of discipleship, when in Mark, when Jesus is standing there talking to disciples, he doesn't say embrace yourself. He doesn't say embrace your ideas, embrace your identity. No, he says deny yourself. And I'm going to give you a new identity. Your identity is a follower of me. So take up your cross and follow me. 
So all Christianity is about denying yourself because we understand by God's grace that if you look into yourself, you know what you're going to find? Nothing good. Yet the world and what we live in is all about you be you, you be yourself, and see how well that's going. This is why the world we live in, we will not have peace in this world. Because the world is continually saying, continually reminding us to claim our sin struggles as a defining thing. And then we say, that's who you are. And we say that somehow that's okay. Where the Christian walk is continually to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. So, what's going to happen? Who will bring reconciliation? Who will bring peace between these two parties? Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 2.5. We're going to see we need a mediator. 2 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2.5. We're going to need a mediator. We're going to need a go-between. So let's, say this, let's make sure we set the stage again here. We have man on one side, on one corner. Sorry for you on the left side of the church. You're on man's side, all right? Man's side is hostile toward the things of God. He doesn't want to have anything to do with the things of God. We have God over here who says because of who He is, His literally character, we cannot have fellowship. My wrath abides on you and my holy character says we cannot have fellowship between one another. We need a go-between. We don't have man sitting here going, well, eventually one of these days, if you wait long enough, I'll get my act together, all right? Because what do we hear about man? The word cannot means does not have the ability. So what do we need? We need someone to be the peacemaker. Who was the peacemaker? This is the beautiful thing about the good news. Because God, when the fullness of time had come, God what? Sent forth His Son to do something about it. And this is where we see in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. And here's what Paul is reminding us. You know who that one mediator is, that go-between, the one that can reconcile all of these. If you've ever been in an argument where you had to be the mediator, you know how hard it is. Because guess what, who the, where the problems are? It's on both sides, all right? And you're sitting there going, both of you got problems here, all right? But we got to deal with this. But the mediator, what the mediator came and did, Christ came and lived that perfect life we could not live, and his death was that perfect sacrifice that we could not offer. He came and lived that perfect life in our state and in our place. This is why in Romans 5.1, if you could flip back to Romans 5.1, In Romans chapter 5, 1, notice this beautiful statement here. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, our legal standing before God has been changed because of the faith in Jesus Christ that we have. We have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. Peace with God. God. Now, let's be clear on this. Remember, this anticipation that is happening that Paul is proclaiming here. 
What had happened up until then was ever since God's law was given to Moses about the sacrificial system, every year, over and over and over and over again, a lamb was given on the Day of Atonement to atone for the Israelites' sin, and it was given for that time period and that year alone, and guess what they had to do next year? bring another lamb again, and another lamb again, and all of this was going on. And if any of the time that they would not do this, the wrath of God was literally abiding on them. And they needed that atoning work. And so this understanding of the wrath of God was very prevalent in the Jewish people's lives. They understood this, and they longed for the day that they could have peace with God. Because up until Christ comes, and remember when John the Baptist points and says, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, until Jesus came as that perfect Lamb, you had momentary peace at best, looking forward to that one day. So then we think about that result. If Christ is the mediator, what is the result? Turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is all about this because Paul is understanding that the heart of the gospel is man having peace with God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Well, let's go to 11. Ephesians 2, 11. Therefore, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were uncircumcised by what is called uncircumcised, which means in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at a time separated from God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and the strangers to the covenants of the promises, having no hope without God in the world. All right, another way of saying it, remember, he says, don't forget, you Gentiles one time, how much hope did you have? It said no hope. But what do we have? But God, all right? This is where we're getting. Don't forget, you were hostile toward the things of God, but God is the actor in this. I stepped away. Where are we? 13, 14, 12? 11? Okay. No. 13. Yeah. Thanks, Allison. By now in Christ Jesus, who were once far off, having been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice what brought you near. The blood of Christ. It wasn't man by his bootstraps dragging himself in. It was the blood of Christ with, with brought you near. For he himself, notice that, is our peace. You want to have peace with God? Who is the one that will give you peace with God? Jesus Christ himself. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments and the ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. Notice how many times. What is Christ coming and preaching? Peace with God. Turn your Bibles real quick to Colossians. Ephesians and then go Philippians and Colossians. Colossians 1, 21. I, I love the fact, it's, it's, it's almost as if Paul had something to say about this whole idea of being alienated and hostile in mind. All right. Colossians 1.21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. All right, again, just to help you out know where you were in this whole journey. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We do, what we see here, indeed, if you continue in faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And even that, notice hope, peace, or what we have playing out here is this. For those who have repented, for those who have understood their great need of that reconciliation, that restoring of that relationship, the Bible says, remember this, because if you don't remember this, you'll never understand the depth of that, all right? And so what is the this we're supposed to remember? You were alienated and hostile in mind, and guess what you did? Back to Romans 1, when you did anything, what was it? It was evil deeds. He has now brought you in, in order that one day, he's not just going to say, now we're okay, go away. It's actually to do what? The mediator takes you and presents you holy and blameless, and because at one time you were but anything but that. He now has presented you holy and blameless before Him. And what a glorious truth that is. And so, when we think about this peace that we can have with God, and we're about ready to turn to the communion table, I want us to take a moment here and think through this for a moment. Because when we think about the communion table, what is in front of us is the word commune. To commune means to have a relationship or to speak with one another. Let's go back to our Opening point, the conflict. Is there any communion going on between this? Yes, there's one is I hate you, and the other one is saying my character and who I am says we cannot have fellowship until something happens. So if we're talking, the call is repent, and the unsaved person is saying, fooey on you, I don't want to. But God, this is where the beauty is, but God. And so what we see here in the communion table is a picture of this peace that we can have with God. Now, there's a term and there's something that we do. When the elders of the church or the leadership of the church stand up here and they talk before the communion table, they're not just talking to fill space and time, all right? There's a thing that they're doing, it's called fencing the table. All right, now if you've ever put up a fence, a fence works in two ways. It keeps certain things out and also keeps certain things in. All right, for any of you who've ever had a garden, I usually had to put up a fence when we had little kids around, and it was called a deer fence, but it had more to do with my kids running through the garden than ever to do with deer because I was protecting what was inside. Now, one of the calls upon us as leadership is to fence the table, explain who this table is for. Now remember, the hostile mind, the hostile man, has, one, has no desire to have fellowship with God. And until the fellowship with God is there, the first fence, if you want to say it, is to the unbeliever to say, this is not for you yet. But notice we said yet, because the call to the unbeliever says, repent and believe, repent of your hostility towards God, believe the good news, place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, repent of it, and then you may come to the table. You first must have your relationship with God and man understood. But Paul reminds us as well that even if you have believed and even if you are coming to the table, there's another relationship that you also have. Even if your God and man relationship is right, your man-to-man relationship needs to be correct as well. So when we say, who is this table for? It's for those who have their God-to-man relationship understood, for those who've repented and believe the good news. And the call goes out every time we have the communion. What is holding you back from doing? The answer is nothing. Repent and believe. The time is at hand. And so the call goes out every time we're at the communion table. Today is the day of salvation. Do not wait. Do not tarry. For tomorrow we have no guarantee of that. So the call of the gospel is always believe now and repent now. It is not to wait. 
For those in the room who have never done that, now is the day of salvation. And I would encourage you, if you, if you, when the service is over, if you do not know this, and you ask the person next to you, and they don't know it either, both of you come and talk to me. Because this is no greater day to anticipate Christmas in what it's all about. It's not about a red guy with a big belly trying to shove down a, a chimney, all right? We have so missed all of the things that are there when we see that Christmas reminds us that we can have that hope one day of Christ coming and that peace that Jesus brought. Now, saying that, I want to take a moment, though, and say as we go to the communion table, we don't do this lightly. There is nothing magical at all about this communion. What it symbolizes, though, is beautiful. Just like we lit a candle that someone wrote peace on it, that candle was just a purple candle until we wrote peace on it, and we gave significance to it. The candle has no significance to it other than that we just wrote peace on it, all right? And the sheer fact that we even forgot to light the hope one before it was ready to go and everything else like that, I'll take blame for that one. But these are, all of these things are, we would call them religious practices to help us remember. What we see here is a practice that God gave us to remember. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And so he took common elements that were at a meal, drink and bread, and he said, I'm going to give meaning to these. They already had meaning in the Passover, in the Passover meal, but he's going to give newer significance to them. So he takes the bread, and when he breaks it, he says, this is what's going to happen in my body. And every time you break the bread, you remind, you remind yourself of that great cost to have peace with God. And not only was his body broken, his blood was shed, reminding us of the Mosaic covenant and all the Mosaic sacrifices that he completed and fulfilled. No more. It is very interesting, actually more than interesting, that the day that he dies on the cross and the sacrifice is given, what happens to the temple veil? It is torn asunder from the top to the bottom, saying, no more needs to be done. This sacrificial system is no more. It is because Jesus came and died the perfect sacrifice. Nothing more needs to be done. And so we stand and we remind ourselves of these things. Now, Archie Sproul, in speaking of this, he said, reminds us of this. He says, we are saved from the guilt and power of sin, but more significantly, we are saved from God Himself, from His just wrath against our sin. That is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that the judge of all creation saved us from His judgment so that we, undeserving sinners though we are, may enjoy fellowship at His table and in His presence. Such grace should move us to worship and love our great Lord and Savior. The question that is in front of us when we think about this candle of peace, the question that is in front of each one of us, do you have peace with God? And peace with God can only be found in your relationship with His Son. It has been said that when Jesus came and proclaimed all the things that He proclaimed, as someone, as I think it was Lewis that said, is either he's a lunatic or a liar, or he's what he says he is. Literally, time and history is divided by his coming. Literally, split time in two. 
And I love, as man in Romans 1 loves to rebel against God, we've got to even change that up because we don't want to give any credit to where anything is due because as long as there's credit to there, it causes us to be faced with the fact. Right now counts for forever. The decisions and the choices you make right now will have eternal consequences. So like Joshua said to the Israelites, I say to you, choose you this day whom you will serve. You're going to serve the gods of this world or the only God that there ever was and there ever will be, God Himself. Because one day, we will stand and give an account. One day, you will stand before Almighty God and give an account. Only those who have made peace with God through the blood of His Son will enter in. Now, you may say, boy, Pastor Tim, that's a lot to swallow there. That was, a, you know, you're really kind of coming at us. Well, let me tell you this. If one of your kids was in the middle of the road one day, and they were having a blast, and they were playing with the toy that they had, and a truck was barreling down at them. Would I ruin their fun and their joy if I said, get out of the road? Would I be a mean father if I said, they are having so much fun playing in the road, and this car is about ready to kill them? What should I do? Cry out. Call out. Get out of the road. And so, yes, there are some hard things in life that we have to grapple with. But the sheer fact that God has given you the grace to make it to this service alive in your heart is beating. He is saying to you, while it is still time, repent and believe the good news. So that is the cry, that is the call. And I would say I try, in my, by God's grace, to do this as much love as I possibly can. Because I was right there where you were one day, but God, who is rich in His mercy, opened my eyes to see. Let's pray. Dearly Father, thank You that by Your Son's death on the cross, You were the Prince, You sent the Prince of Peace for us to have forgiveness. Thank you. May our lives display with gratitude who you are to the lost and dying world around us. We ask these things in your Son's name we pray. Amen. If you could please stand with us as we prepare for communion.